Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the third installment in our Karate Kid movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Karate Kid Part 3. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. Well, audiences didn't have to wait too long, just like you listeners, for this film to come out. The Karate Kid came out. uh, It did break the two-year cycle that it was on with the previous film. This came out uh, June 30th, 1989. So it's pretty good for the trilogy to come out within the 80s. It didn't really take them too long to make these movies, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And John G. Alveson is, of course, back directing uh, to complete his trilogy. Now, listeners, if you don't really want to know the scores for the film or the plot summary, you just want to jump right into our review, then we do have those timestamps in the descriptions below for you to easily jump ahead to. And also, if you could just take a minute to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, that just helps us be found by other people wanting to listen to a fun movie review podcast, learning more about film, video games, TV shows. That's a great free way to support us, and it also helps us to become verified on Rotten Tomatoes. So kind of a two-for-one double right there. So if you just take a minute, give us that five-star rating, leave us a nice review. That really helps us, and we greatly appreciate it. So the Karate Kid Part 3 is, I hate to say it, depending upon who you ask, considered one of the worst installments in this series, if not the worst. Yeah, I I wondered about that because kind of like I mentioned in the previous podcast with the Karate Kid Part 2, I don't know if I've really heard anything about Karate Kid Parts 2 and 3. I've maybe heard a little bit about 2, but especially not 3. I don't know if I was even aware that if that this was a trilogy coming into this retrospective. I really wasn't aware of this film either. Of course, I had always known about the first film. Nevertheless, they did make three parts to it. And I can't help but feel like even though Back to the Future 1 came out the year after the first one, keep in mind Karate Kid Part 2 came out after the first Back to the Future film. So in some ways, I feel like they're kind of trying to chase their tale of having this interconnected three-part story arc across three films. Maybe, yeah. It does kind of feel that way. I'm not quite so sure, but 89 was an interesting year for cinema. Um, We did see Back to the Future Part 2 come out. Uh, Ghostbusters 2 came out. We've reviewed both of those films. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we've also reviewed that. Uh, Tim Burton's Batman, When Harry Met Sally... Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which we will get around to, listeners. At some point. At some point. Supposedly, the third one is coming out on P Premium VOD at uh, mm. the beginning of September, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the Burbs, I love that movie. Field of Dreams, one of my favorites. Pet Cemetery, which we've, we've also reviewed. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I just watched that film not that long ago. My fiance 
did not want to sit through it with me. I made her do it. It, <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and one of the kind of last remaining 80s teenage gems is Say Anything. I really do recommend that movie also. So it was an interesting year for cinema. I can't say it was as good as uh, for The Karate Kid Part 1 and Part 2 when we saw franchises like Ghostbusters and Terminator and so many others kick off. Um, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Hayao Miyazaki. Kiki's Delivery right. Service came out in 89 also. Ah, yes, yes. And in 89, Rain Man won Best Picture, starring the two powerhouse actors, Tom Cruise, who stardom was going nowhere but up, and Dustin Hoffman's, who was, that was, was like one of his last roles. He was slowly disappearing, but he was huge in 89. And I'm pretty sure he won the Oscar for Rain Man. So, yes, uh, Dustin Hoffman did win for actor in the leading role. Um Rayman got four Oscars, um, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Writing or Screenplay, written directly for the screen. So, nice. yeah, it got a few Oscars in 1989. It's a great movie. I do recommend it. I do have it in my collection. Well, speaking of awards, this movie didn't follow the trend of the previous two films where they both were at the Academy Awards. This one uh, missed it altogether, but it did make it to the Razzies. Oh, did it? It did receive five Razzie nominations. Ooh. Now, I'm not saying this is this is my opinion, but take this what you will before we go into the movie. It did win. It did. It didn't win any of these. It was nominated for worst picture. Ralph Macchio was nominated for worst actor. Uh, Pat Morita, who was Oscar nominated for the first film, was here nominated for worst supporting actor. Albertson was nominated for Worst Director and uh, Worst Screenplay. And it's the same guy that's done all three screenplays. He So I take from that what you will. The people who run the Razzies clearly thought this was one of the worst films of the year. And if we go ahead and take a look at the scores, it has a letterbox rating of 2.5, which is actually the third highest rated of the series. That's right at halfway too, which is also oh. not very good. So I'm, if that's the if that's higher than it's, more, it's the, the other fourth two. highest. I'm sorry. Okay, if it's the fourth highest, okay. So out of five, have, <laughs> got you. All right, I understand now. Yeah. The second lowest. Never mind. I was gonna say if it's <laughs> if it's number three, then that's interesting. I wonder what other two are behind it. Um, I mean, I guess I wonder. What scores the other two have? Because I guess it's pretty obvious at this point which ones are behind it. But yeah, that's that's low. Two point five is low. Well, speaking of low, it does currently hold a five point two on IMDb, which mm. is a sharp drop from the uh, first film's seven point two and the second film's six point zero. Yeah, they they're going down by pretty big margins here. Rotten Tomato, the critics gave it a 15% approval rating with a 35% audience approval rating. That's that's brutal. And it is deep in the red zone over on Metascore with a 36. Did it get a cinema score? It did get a cinema score of a B minus. Okay. Last time audiences gave part two an A minus. This went to a B minus. So, yeah, this according to cinema score, this is considered... Um, the least favorite in the franchise is considered the worst in the franchise. Um, it's tied for worst on Metascore. 
And it is not the worst on Rotten Tomatoes, at least, or the lowest on IMDb. So it's it's like I said, depending on who you ask, this is either the worst in the series or the second worst. Yikes. It's it's an interesting drop coming from the first one, which is regarded um, highly is highly regarded. Um, the second one, clearly not so much. And the third one, clearly not so much. But I'm I guess I'm surprised that the Rotten Tomato score is so low because the last couple of times we noted or especially the last one, we noted it was lower, but it wasn't, you know, like it hadn't tanked. 15 percent is a brutal score. So now after hearing you know, the scores and it getting Razzies, what did it make in the box office? Because that might paint a different light. Um, not necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't find a budget anywhere for this movie. Hmm. It's not on box office mojo. It wasn't on Wikipedia. It nobody could find the numbers for this movie, which I guess doesn't really surprise me because, um, well, it didn't do well. So Waiting three years proved to be too long. Uh, a wait, just for some context, the first film had an $8 million budget. The second film jumped to $13 million. So we can guess. Um, and the fourth film had a $12 million budget. So we can guess it's comparable to somewhere around those numbers. Okay. But nevertheless, opening weekend, it came out swinging with $10.3 million. Okay. That's okay. not too bad. Not too bad. But it did open uh, number three, opening weekend, which is um, mm. disappointing, I would say, to the conclusion in a trilogy. What did it go up against in the box office? So it went up against Tim Burton's Batman. Oh, well, okay. I guess it's no surprise. Keep in mind, that was in its second week, but that movie wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also went up against uh, Disney's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was also in its second week. And that had been that had been number two at the box office. Also, Um, rounding out the top five is Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones had been at the box office for six weeks and um, it was holding strong in the top five. And Ghostbusters had been out for three weeks and. Uh, yeah, so at least it beat out Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones, and the Dead Poet Society, I guess, came in at number six. But this one movie that people do remember, I keep seeing it pop up for me to stream for free, is uh, maybe you've heard of it, a little film by this indie director, Spike Lee, Do the Right Thing. Yeah, I don't know if I've heard of that one. So keep in mind, Spike Lee was from Universal Pictures. Uh, Do the Right Thing came out at number eight. That's that's interesting. I never knew that. Came out in 353 theaters. Um, the Karate Kid didn't last very long in theaters. Um, I think it only lasted about five weeks. Really? It only lasted about five weeks, and um, it dropped to number seven, 11, 13, and then it finally landed at 14. Um, yeah, it did really bad in the box office. Hmm. How much did it make overall? Domestically, it grossed $38.9 million for a worldwide hmm. total of $38.9 million. It's not too good. It's okay, <laughs> yes. But. Well, let's keep in mind the part one, which was a kind of a box office blunder to begin with, went on to gross $91 million. It grossed mm-hmm. over 10 times its budget. 
And then the sequel was a massive hit with $115 million. And then the the third part only rakes in $38 million. It's Yeah, it's raking in a fraction of what it had made before. It's no surprise we're not getting the Karate Kid Part 4. But, Alan, it's 1989. You are seeing the Karate Kid Part 3 trailers on your television, on your radio, maybe. I don't know. Is the trailer going to get you in? Maybe not necessarily opening weekend, but are you going to go see it in theaters or like wait to home video? Um, probably <laughs> not. I see that. I see that mostly because um, I guess I'm just curious as to why they would continue to make Karate Kid movies. Because yeah. part one, of course, was a pretty pretty big hit. Part two is an even bigger hit. Yep. Um. So I guess it's just natural to keep going, but I don't know, you know, where else could the story go from there? Because it seems like everything's pretty much wrapped up at that point by part two. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just disinterested at this point because I wasn't a too big of a fan. If you listen to those two last two podcasts, wasn't too big of a fan of the other two. So uh, probably not, honestly. The, also, the trailer does not really give it away as being something very interesting either. So... I'm going to say probably no. I uh, wouldn't be very interested back in 89 to go watch this, which I guess I'm in the majority of most audiences who did. So I'm actually going to take the opposite approach. This trailer would get me into theaters, not necessarily opening weekend, but I would go see it sometime in its theatrical run. Apparently, I, I would only have about a month to do that. Yeah, anyway. you have to be pretty quick on, about that because otherwise it's going to be gone. Yeah, otherwise I'd have to run to blockbuster to get the movie i mm -hmm. actually think this is the best trailer of the bunch oh now, really I, I do i really didn't care for the trailers and i'm on the record as saying the previous two trailers would not have got me into theaters surprisingly i think back in 89 if i saw this trailer on tv and i was in i'm 25 right now so if i was 25 and 89 yeah i would probably go check this movie out it looked pretty interesting and it looked like it would be kind of a fun time to go see in the middle of summer for me i guess i agree, can agree with that the trailer is not i guess it it does stick out more to me than the other two did but i i still sitting on the fence of nah probably not too excited to go see it despite the trailer well listeners if you haven't seen the karate kid part three as of this as of this recording it is currently streaming on netflix uh, the whole trilogy is. So um, if you want, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film. Come back and click play. And we'll be ready to talk about spoilers for the third part. John Kreese, reprised by Martin Cove, is a broken man. Once the master of the fierce Cobra Kai dojo, he's now lost all of his students and purpose in life. That is until he reunites with his old war buddy, Terry Silver, played by Thomas Ian Griffith a major mogul in the California area. Silver isn't going to let his captain down. He sends the haggard crease off for a tropical rejuvenation while he plots to decimate Daniel LaRusso, reprised by Ralph Macchio, and Mr. Miyagi, reprised by Noriyuki Pat Morita. Speaking of those two, as Kreese leaves, they land from their journey in Okinawa. They return to their old apartment building to find it's being torn down. Miyagi's out of a job in Daniel's mother Lucille, reprised by Randy Heller, which did surprise me, is off taking care of their sick Uncle Louie, played by Joseph Perry. 
Instead of Daniel starting college, he uses his tuition to lease a rundown shop, where he plans to fulfill Mr. Miyagi's dream of running a bonsai tree store. Across the street lives Jessica Andrews, played by Robin Lively. She's working at her aunt's pottery shop before she returns to college in Ohio. Immediately, Daniel and Jessica hit it off, but decide getting into a serious relationship won't be for the best, since she's returning to school and she just patched things up with her boyfriend. Meanwhile, Silver decides to fly in the bad boy of karate to strip Daniel of his title at the All-Valley Tournament. Last year, Daniel defeated Johnny, and Miyagi utterly humiliated Kreese. Now, according to Silver, it's their turn to feel the pain. This bad boy is Mike Barnes, played by Sean Kanan, a hothead with fists of fury. Which is funny because we knew uh, Michael Barnes growing up. We did, you're right. Yeah, and I don't think you necessarily wanted to cross him. So I, that's what I was thinking <laughs> of while watching this. I must say, that, that name just sounded familiar to me. Mm-hmm. But now, okay, now I remember now. Mike Barnes rolls with two partners in crime, Dennis, played by Christopher Paul Ford, and Snake, played by Jonathan Alvidson, which just so happens to be the director's son. Despite Daniel wishing to enter the tournament on his own, Miyagi refuses to sign his entry form, because karate is about honor and discipline, not defending a plastic trophy. This quickly becomes a major problem for Daniel, as Barnes and his crew continually physically threaten and destroy property of Daniel and his friends until he signs the paper to enter the tournament to fight him. One day, Daniel comes home to find Miyagi's bonsai tree missing, so he and Jessica decide to rappel into Devil's Cauldron to dig up the first one Miyagi planted upon arrival to the States. But it's no surprise when Barnes and his crew threaten to leave Jessica and Daniel down in the cauldron to drown until Daniel signs the paper, which he finally does. To make matters worse, Barnes breaks the bonsai tree, just despite Daniel. Back at the shop, Daniel pleads to Miyagi for forgiveness, but not all hope is lost. Miyagi believes the tree may yet live, except the bonsai tree is the least of their worries. Miyagi refuses to train Daniel because he believes the boy is fighting in the tournament for the wrong reasons. Of course, this is all a part of Silver's plan to drive a wedge between master and student. He shows up in their backyard one day with a ruse to gain their trust. He spins a yarn about Kreese disgracing their dojo, and he's come all the way from South Korea to apologize, despite Kreese passing away from a heart attack due to PTSD and a broken heart. Quickly, Silver takes Daniel under his wing, and the two train in the old Cobra Kai dojo. Shockingly, Daniel is changing from principle to passion. No longer the rule follower, but now he's learning to cheat and even sweep the leg, like Kreese taught Johnny. One night at a dance club, Daniel breaks a guy's nose because he was hitting on Jessica. She wants nothing to do with him, and he runs away from the authorities in fear. No surprise, this was all Silver's plan to ruin any remaining relationship Daniel has. But this actually turns out to be Daniel's catalyst for change. He patches things up with Miyagi, Jessica, and tells Silver he's appreciative but done with his training and the tournament. Now is when Silver's mask comes off. Kreese jumps out, scaring Daniel, and Barnes appears, violently beating our hero. Now, the three are ready to decommission Daniel. That is, until Mr. Miyagi saves the day, putting them all to shame in an awesome fight. Finally, the day of the tournament arrives. Barnes, now with the open backing of Kreese and Silver, is seemingly unbeatable. Even during the championship fight, he toys with Daniel like a cat with a mouse. That is until Miyagi gives Daniel the pep talk he's been needing desperately. 
Like the bonsai tree that grew back, Daniel also must choose to grow strong and not to lose fear. Stay focused. Your best karate is still inside you. In an awesome finishing move, Daniel defeats Barnes, utterly humiliating Barnes, Kreese, Silver, and the Cobra Kai name once and for all, as Daniel and Miyagi finally hug it out in an emotional triumph as credits roll. I feel like that plot summary took me forever to read. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it it is a very <laughs> dense plot, um, which is, I guess, a little bit surprising. Last time was a bit dense itself, but this yeah. one, I feel, it has so much to it. Um, I was a bit surprised by that. There is a lot going on between the new characters, Crease and Silver, and a lot of machinations of getting characters to betray each other. There's a new character yep. of Jessica across the street. They're having a platonic relationship. They're opening up a bonsai store. They're training for the tournament. Bonsai trees are a big thing in this. So there's yeah. quite a bit they pack into this runtime, which just so happens to be the shortest of the trilogy. Yeah, I wondered about that. I, I I couldn't remember the time when I was watching it, how long part two was, but as saw that I was like, this looks to be the shortest, not by a whole lot though, um, because part one was about, what, 10 minutes longer, roughly speaking? Um, yeah. So it was two hours and four minutes. It was, it was. This one is a minute shorter than last time. Okay. And it's about 14 minutes shorter than the first film. Okay, so yeah, they're, it's not, I guess, not super terribly. short compared to the other two. Yeah, comparatively, right. yeah, it's shorter. But yeah, you are, yeah, there is a lot compact here, um, which is also interesting because in the second movie, we got a recap of, of the first one, right? We got to see just like a Cliff Notes version of what happened up until the point of the first, of the point of where the first one ended and the second one began. Um, and that one was meant to kind of lead right into from one to two, like you could watch them back to back. This one's kind of the same way, I guess. Um, they do give a recap again, covering the first two movies. Um, but I guess it takes place a bit longer after the after the second movie does. Um, cause they don't really tell us how long Mi Miyagi and, uh, Daniel were on, were in Okinawa. Um, but either way it does open up with crease, which, I was interested in at first to see what they're going to do with his character because we did see the beginning of two, he was pretty much humiliated by Miyagi. Um, so I thought that was interesting that they started off with Kreese as like our main lead into the story before we actually got the real plot going. Yeah, once again, starting with kind of a recap of part one, the new kind of footage ending from part two. I actually really like this for the fact that it will allow you, whether you're watching part two or part three, it basically allows you to watch the movie without having seen the previous one. It gives you the highlights to catch you up to speed, which is kind of nice. You can't do that, for instance, with Back to the Future part three. If you haven't seen part two close to when you watch part three, then I you're going to be pretty confused on a lot of um, scenarios that happen. Right. But nevertheless, I was surprised to see they pulled that again. Now, if you watch the movies back to back like we did, skip the first few minutes. Yeah. But um, nevertheless, yeah, starting with Crease, I did read somewhere that Crease was going to come back as the villain. And I like how Crease looks really different. He's just really haggard and down on his luck. 
and he's the captain from Vietnam and he brings back in uh, his old war buddy Silver is rich and kind of Silver becomes the proxy of the Cobra Kai and I actually thought that was a pretty smart setup for a plot of you're right where could they go from here they pretty much disregard everything that happened in Okinawa um, Yumiko uh, has dumped Daniel she's going to dance in Tokyo yeah we'll they did this in part two yeah that's true and I do want to talk about their relationships later um, but yes they do do this thing again where uh, new girl this time new love interest just like last time so you know I will say I am a little more positive on kind of wiping the slate clean because these movies kind of have their own contained stories. They don't really yeah. build off of each other. So not being so encumbered by their previous parts and just giving us a fresh a fresh slate. I do like that. It, it allows us to just focus on the new story they're telling without kind of having the baggage of the previous two films. That's that's true. They do kind of set up what the first two were about. Um, same with the second one as well. They do set up what the previous movie or movies were about, but the story that happens within that movie is very contained within the story, within that movie itself. Um, doesn't have a whole lot of bleed from uh, two other movies. They're, they're there, they're loosely connected, but uh, essentially you could watch two without having really to see the first one to really understand what's going on. They kind of explained it in the beginning. Same with this one. Um, although, uh, be, although watching the first one, I feel would give you a bigger emotional, there would be a bigger emotional impact if you had seen the first one, because this is, a reflection of the first one in a lot of ways. Um, they're replaying a, f a good number of moments from that happened in the first movie to kind of reflect um, what happened then versus kind of coming back to that same thing. But now it's a bit more mature this time around. So I would say if you have, I would say it would probably be a good idea to watch the first one um, before watching the third one to kind of have that also emotional um, weight, understanding the emotional weight going into this one. Definitely building off of the character relationships between Miyagi and Daniels, probably the most important part mm -hmm. uh, across the trilogy of really understanding where they've come, kind of like how far they've come together. Um, yeah, I would say for the most part, though, I would say these three films are just kind of remakes of each other. The, yeah. the plot, the narrative structure is nearly identical. That's yeah, that's true. I'll touch on that in a little bit. In a, yeah, a little bit, too. But yeah, you are right. There is a definite formula to these movies. Now, is it just me? I'm not trying to be judgmental, but did Ralph Macho look a little pudgy to you? He did look different. I'll give you that. He did look different. I couldn't tell if um, if he had gained weight or if he was just getting older. He did look different. It has been almost nine years. No. It has been a good number of years since the first one because he was, what, 22 in the first one? Right. So in He's the definitely closer to his 30s, if not past his 30s now. Yeah, he, it has been five years. He was 22. So when this movie came out, he was 28. Uh, Pat Morita was 52 in the first one. He is now 57. I will okay. say uh, Pat Morita doesn't look like he's aged very much. Yeah, he looks the pretty same. much the same from the first <laughs> one, yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool, but... Nevertheless, Ralph Macchio is like the only human being to be 28 years old, but look like he's about 17 or act like it. It's it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do kind of want to talk about him just for a second, because I find the way that they handle his character in this movie rather interesting, because 
in the la- in the first one, it was about that relationship, the building of the relationship between Miyagi and Daniel. The second one was about kind of challenging their ideals, um, mostly Miyagi's ideals. And then this one is challenging their relationship itself. Um, now we have the two of, and we have Daniel kind of doing things himself now without the help of Miyagi. And at, at one point, Miyagi just straight up tells him, no, I'm not going to train you. So he's real, he's pretty much all on his own. So it's interesting to see how Daniel acts in this movie um, because most things that do happen is are his fault, um, partially because of Miyagi saying no, he tries to train himself and to know he doesn't really get very far with that. So he goes under the comes under the wing of silver, um, which of course is just a complete downward spiral from there on. So it is interesting how they handle his character where everything here is relatively self-inflicted because of his own actions. You know, this movie helped me realize that Daniel has been a fairly boring character over the last two movies. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, he is so straight laced. He's a rule follower. I mean, he's just kind of a nice young teenage boy, but he's just never had anything about him that's made him quite interesting, except he's always been the underdog in every situation, always trying to do the right thing. So that's something I really appreciated with the way they wrote Daniel's character in this movie is that he's going to be a rebel. He's going to kind of be pushed into or peer pressured into doing things for the wrong reasons. Nevertheless, he thinks it's right. But I did love, I actually loved how Daniel is without even realizing it, becoming a Cobra Kai. He's becoming Johnny. And there's that moment when silver tells Daniel to sweep the leg and he's teaching him the front sweep. And that's exactly what, uh, Chris told Johnny in the first film that got him injured and right. Daniel's just going along with it. I was like, okay, this, this is actually pretty satisfying to see silver kind of become the dark side mentor of Daniel and tell him to sweep the leg. I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. It is kind of, it is kind of interesting to see how, you know, the thing that Daniel tried not to become because of the teachings of Miyagi, um, and learned he's, He's kind of reversing that, right? He's going, he's regressing in his progress of uh, becoming, of learning karate as also a a state of mind, more or less. Because now he's regressing to a point where he is, he is fighting out of anger instead of fighting with his mind, whereas that's, which is what Miyagi had taught him. He's fighting now, um, not for self-defense, especially here towards the end, um, but he's fighting because he's just angry with, I think is most evident by the uh, dance club scene when that guy tries to hit on Jessica. Um, So yeah, we do get to see how all the teachings from Miyagi are starting to disappear uh, once he goes under the wing of silver. Um, It is kind of interesting to see, you know, this character regressing. And it is, again, it's, it's his fault. He, he's kind of been the thing to cause that his own downfall. Um, even though there are much easier options out there, like Silver saying, I can train you, and he probably shouldn't do it um, because he can't do it himself. He decides to do it. It's his own actions that cause a lot of the story to happen, which I do appreciate. Yeah, there is a pretty solid presence throughout these three films of just kind of taking responsibility for your own actions, and you reap what you sow, essentially. And so this kind of plays into Miyagi's life lesson in the second one of um, never put passion before principle. Right. 
So Miyagi's right. principles would not dictate fighting in the karate tournament, but Daniel's passion of wanting to not really be pushed around by anybody and just being peer pressured into it, basically being threatened into it. Ultimately, he foregoes those principles and it's all about the passion of winning. And that's exactly what Silver teaches him is doesn't matter if it's cheating or illegal, you know, find ways to skirt around the rules. And really all that matters is how you can win. So the way that uh, the antagonist is able to stick his claws into Daniel and rip Miyagi and Daniel apart, I really like that aspect of the movie. There really needed to be something different between these two. These two couldn't just always be so tight all the time. So I'm glad there's kind of this argument that rips them apart. And despite Pat Morita getting a worse nomination for the Razzies, I'm actually going to say this is his best performance in the trilogy because I get more emotion out of him here than in the other two films when he is crying, when Daniel slams the door in his face and when he's giving that impassioned speech and he just kind of yells there at Daniel and he gives him that pick me up. I was like, I'm, mm -hmm. Miyagi's always so in Daniel's words, so dang passive. Yeah. But in this, he really has more of an emotional range that I like. Yeah, I, I guess I find, um, I think I find Pat Morita's acting more impactful in part two, but I think that this is definitely a second best from him, which is kind of funny because he's mostly known for his role in the first one. Right. Um, I think he has a bigger range of emotions in here and in the second one than he did ever in the first one. So yeah, this is definitely good stuff from him. I think that my crowning would my crowning would go towards his performance in the second one but i think that's just because it was a story about miyagi more or less um so i think we got a little bit more out of him there than we do here but yeah it is still a good a good performance and the writers do find seemingly solid ways throughout the trilogy to now i guess apparently not everybody agrees but i think they find good ways to work in like analogies that are life lessons um, when they do replant the bonsai tree that was broken and has come back together and they replanted in devil's cauldron. Miyagi yeah. says the tree chose to grow back strong. So now Daniel, he's like, now you have to choose how you'll grow. Right. And I understand those are like pretty basic lessons, but nevertheless, they're pretty good lessons, especially for younger viewers, which I think is nice that I think adults can watch these movies and not hate themselves. But at the same time, I can see this being far more pointed towards children, trying to get them to learn these lessons. And keep in mind, Daniel is, I guess he's starting college, so he's about a teenager. And Miyagi is kind of that father mentor figure. I really don't think they lose anything in that movie. I think it's just as strong as the other two films between those two. I, yeah, I, I would say I like the idea of the bonsai tree yeah. being planted in Noah's cauldron. I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, execution's a little bit of a different story, I suppose, because they, like a number of things, and not just this one, but kind of the whole trilogy, especially two and three, they aren't exactly very subtle about the lessons that they're trying to teach. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, I like the idea of the bonsai tree, the strong bonsai tree that's cost, that worth that's worth $10,000. Um, not necessarily the execution. You know, subtlety is not in this trilogy's vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Everything is pretty straightforward and spelled out, and lessons are basically just 
told to the characters and yep. once the lesson is told to them, then they're able to kind of like put it into action and learn it. I, I you're right. I wish it was, there could be better writing clearly on that front. But at the same time, if this movie really is speaking to kids, then in some ways, I think I like that they're a little more verbal about spelling it out just to um, not beat around the bush so much with it. So you're right. It could be better. But at the same time, I'm not too uh, concerned about it. I like that the lessons are kind of spelled out, actually. Okay. Yep. Well, okay. So we're we're kind of being a little heartfelt about this movie. But yes. <laughs> I got to say, this was... I laughed out loud a number of times. Oh yeah. In this movie. This is easily the funniest in the series. Um, I, here's a couple lines that I wrote down. Um, this is the eighties. You got to do something about it. You can't be so dang passive. Oh yeah. 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 I remember that line. Um, and then he drives off and then Miyagi, uh, after their fight, him and Miyagi are driving home. Miyagi starts singing. Oh Yeah. Yeah, that, that scene was actually legitimately pretty funny to me. That was so funny. Um, here's some pretty awful lines. I love it when he pounds him. That's what uh, yeah. Silver says about Barnes. At the, I love it when he pounds him. This is beautiful. This is more fun than I thought. Um, Miyagi, he Daniel says, Miyagi, do you know how to do a front sweep? Miyagi comes out with a broom, starts sweeping. Mm -hmm. um, and my, I would probably say the scene that I laughed at the most was when Jessica is about to fall into the cauldron. Daniel chucks the tree behind him and <laughs> he's like, the trees, in the, he said, oh my gosh, the trees in the water, get out of the way. And <laughs> they just repel down there. And he's like, wash the tree off with your clean water the salt water will kill the roots and then they pull the ropes up and daniel <laughs> said hey this isn't a joke anymore <laughs> ralph macho's line delivery just had me cracking up in his facial expressions yeah i think one of my favorite lines comes from silver silver has some pretty good lines in this movie too um partially from the way just the way that he expresses it there's a yeah. there's a scene um i think it's actually pretty early on um he's talking with he's talking with crease and he asks Kreese, anything else, buddy? And Kreese says, make his knuckles bleed. Yeah. And uh, Silver re reacts by saying, hey, hey, I like that. I like that, Johnny. And then just laughs maniacally. <laughs> his it's, laugh is good. It is. It's very, very, very 80s, um, which is, it, I just find it fun. That, those are, that's actually only, the only line I think I actually wrote down in this movie. Um, but that was the one I remember most from at least silver's character is that line of hey hey i like that johnny it's just funny yeah i i it still takes the cake for me when he says i love it when he pounds him i'm like ah uh, yes oh cringe <laughs> but i gotta say that silver is actually my favorite villain of all of them we've got i think johnny was a nice teenage antagonist I wish we would have gotten more of Crease in the first film and in this one. I really feel like he's just still kind of given the back burner mm -hmm. and Chosen and Sato. Sato is utterly forgettable. Chosen was kind of an interesting, uh, kind of like a interesting opposite of Daniel um, where they, they're both of their, um, you know, father type figures were both friends and now they're enemies and they've kind of taken different paths for that reason. It's interesting, but 
Silver just is interesting because he is this very kind of over the top 80s cartoonish villain. And he's got this black ponytail and he's like has an interesting build. He's really kind of tall and slender, but still has pretty broad shoulders. Um, he just kind of has this very kind of maniacal, as you said, this maniacal laugh and look about him. So as far as a villain goes within these movies, he's probably the one that catches my attention the most. That's interesting because I guess I don't necessarily feel the same way. Um, what? Yeah, no, I <laughs> I mentioned in the last podcast for part two that I actually enjoyed Sato's oh. and uh, Chosen as their as the villains, mostly because of Sato, mostly because of Sato. I keep wanting to say uh, Sato because of uh, Inception, um, but oh, mostly yeah. because of Sato and his emotional ties to Miyagi. I think that's what kept me interested with um, the villain there. Mm. Um, I do, although I do like that um, Silver in this movie plays a much bigger role as a villain. Like he, I feel like now, especially with him being the villain, he actually has a bigger impact on the plot. Yes. The last few villains, especially in the first movie with Kreese, um, it felt like they were there, but their, their presence wasn't very, you know, they didn't do much when it came to affecting the plot. It was mostly... Um, just the two main characters. We get a little bit more of this with Sato and Chosen, um, but not as much as they do here. I feel like here, when in terms of the villain affecting the plot, this one has the most activity there. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best villain because it just kind of feels like they're, they are playing that, that trope of, well, here was the bad guy, but there's a guy above him that's even more powerful. That I'm, I'm not too sure I'm on board with that. I would like it, I think, more if we got to see just Crease come back and maybe Crease have more to do with the plot, good or bad, to see what more they can explore with his character. Um, I would think I would have enjoyed that more because he's here for like the beginning and then he's at the end. <laughs> like a short scene in the middle. Um, other than that, it's pretty much either Mike or it's Silver as the villains. So I, I guess I'm kind of down the middle with what I, with what I think about him and, and his villainy between these and the end of two movies. It was a shock that Kreese is actually the first character we start off with after the flashbacks are over. Yeah. And he does kind of play a central role there in the very beginning. And then I was really disappointed that he doesn't come back until the very, very end of the movie. And I was just hoping they would have given Martin Cove something better to do since he did come back for the third film. But nevertheless, I do see Silver and Crease as they're basically kind of the same person, whereas yeah. uh, Silver can kind of put on the mask and be the deceptive one, whereas Crease is just the hard-edged, abrasive one in your face. And I really actually enjoyed that they brought back the Cobra Kai. It's kind of... I couldn't help but get flashes to the Dark Knight Rises. I'm just picturing Alfred. Alfred's looking at Bruce. He's like, do you know what that is? That is the resurgence of the Cobra Kai. You mm -hmm. see the ferocity, the speed. I'm like, this is very much like the Dark Knight Rises where <laughs> we've kind of have um, the bad guy come back, uh, but in a different form. So Cobra Kai has come back more or less in a proxy form and how basically Silver's been able to train uh, Daniel in the Cobra Kai dojo. Uh, for those reasons alone, I think he's the most interesting villain to me. But there, herein lies a bit of a problem, I would say. The, I would say the plot really only gets interesting about an hour and seven minutes into the movie. 
And, yeah. and I'm being and I'm being oddly specific because that's when Silver really does trick Daniel um, into using the front sweep and being his teacher and whatnot. I would say yes, I, I agree with you, but I would say mostly because that's when the editing slows down and it actually starts like building the plot along and not like throwing things at you every five <laughs> seconds because the pacing of this movie is ridiculous. We noted in the last two, uh, and it was, I remember you had this problem more than I did with the pacing. Yeah, the pacing. We I know we both had problems with the pacing in part one. I was okay more with the pacing in part two. You were not necessarily on the same boat. Mm -hmm. Pacing here is, I think, the worst has ever been of these three movies. The first hour is so, it's so fast, but edited in such a way where scenes don't make much sense when you cut to them. And then the second half, it slows down. I feel it finally finds it some kind of footing to tell its story. But getting to that point and all the things it has to set up before then, it just, it did seem needless because they move on so fast. I found the first hour of this movie to be almost whiplash inducing. I know, I I didn't find it to be whiplash inducing. I found act one of part one to be whiplash inducing, how that ran at lightning speed and then had the second long it had the longest second act in cinema history um whereas this one part three um i am kind of i guess discombobulated if i can use that word with the first hour of this film because we clearly know um silver brings in barnes to kind of set up this nefarious plot but barnes and his crew are just doing everything Johnny and Chosen did, just destroying everything, which has gotten super old at this point. Um, also, I'm really waiting for Silver to play a big role, but it does take about an hour into the movie for that to happen. And otherwise, it is kind of just scattershot, where they're setting up a bonsai store, which really has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And also, Jessica Bar. Jessica Andrews across the street with her pottery. Yeah, they, they say her first and last name at least the first five <laughs> times that they talk about her. <laughs> yeah, they did. It was, uh, I didn't remember, I didn't forget that when I was writing the plot summary. <laughs> um, but they do, uh, she is more of a platonic relationship, which I like because they threw away the first relationship, which was my favorite in the first movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for his relationship with Yumiko. They threw that away. This one, fine. Make it platonic. Just make them friends. But nevertheless... Friends, um, I would say friends is uh, being pretty generous. Even though they say, oh, we're just friends. It's, I would say they're, they're being rather generous, especially there in that last scene together. Well, yeah. I, I don't know any boyfriend that's cool with their girlfriend going out on dates like they're doing. Um, I, I did say platonic, but, you know, they are still basically dating. Um, right. And really hanging out a lot. Um, and, you know, it is a little scattershot with the Devil's Cauldron and Bonsai Tree. They kind of come back to that about three times mm-hmm. in the film. So, yeah, you're right. That's why I'd probably say the second half of the film is my favorite between Daniel and Silver. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like there are things here that could probably be removed um the bonsai shop i don't see much of a reason for it to be in this movie i mean i guess i understand that it's uh, it's kind of miyagi's dream for this to happen you know um i 
don't I just I know I I guess because of how many things this movie is already talking about and how many things, how many topics it has to jump back and forth between I don't see I guess a good reason for it to be here same with Jessica I am not a very big fan of Jessica in this movie she feels like and this kind of gets into I guess I met, briefly mentioned this a little bit ago that there is a, I said that there's a definite um structure to this movie right there's a de- or to, to these movies there's a definite structure to these movies um is what i said um i can really feel it here if i couldn't feel it in the last one i could really feel it here it feels like jessica has to be here because there's always some kind of love interest there's always some kind of girl in the mix of this um silver has to be this way because a villain is, there's always a villain who's against the morals of of our main character um, especially like completely against it, the complete opposite way. It, there are just things here that I feel where you can, I just can really feel the formula in this movie of the Karate Kid series. And that's not a really a good thing. You know, I think a simple way to probably shake up the formula a little bit by giving the film stakes and also giving purpose to the pottery shop and Mr. Miyagi's bonsai store is for them to come to find out that we, we know that Silver is um, very rich. He he bought 20 dojos they're going to open up to research the Cobra Kai. That never comes back. They're still in the old kind of small dojo. And I think it would have made a lot more sense for this real estate guy. What if he owned the land uh, that Miyagi's Bonsai store and the pottery store were on? And they were they come to find out they were actually leasing it from him. And he's going to tear it down or something. Uh, to do something with it. So the stakes for the tournament isn't just to uh, win Daniel his honor back and defeat the bad guys just because, but also to preserve Miyagi's bonsai store. That really would have, I think, now maybe that's cliche in of itself, but it at least would have given more of a purpose to the whole first half of the film. Yeah, I mean, that would also kind of be somewhat of a reflection from the second movie because that is yeah, somewhat the of neighborhood. a new- yeah, that is a uh, an issue in the second movie, especially towards the end as well. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, and you're right. The That does happen in the second film where he's going to tear down the neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, that's completely dropped and so easily resolved. But yeah. you're right. They, they really should have brought back those stakes for the third film. Yeah. And I think that would have made more sense. But it is kind of frustrating to just have him running around this bonsai tree shop and it ultimately is forgotten and has no purpose. Yeah. And the stakes in this movie, they don't <laughs> feel like, you know, they're finale worthy. Um, Daniel is forced into this, into into entering this tournament. I guess I would use the word forced kind of um, weakly. Because it feels like the one thing that they the the guys really He's do harassed. is yeah they just harass him, <laughs> um, and even when he goes to the police, they just ride that off. And this yeah. this one this part feels like it was a complete cop out, um, <laughs> pun intended. Um, yeah. They go uh, Daniel goes to the police to try to tell them that hey we're being harassed. They they destroyed the shop and the police laugh him off. Um, okay, <laughs> whatever yeah, they have, I guess they have proof. Yeah, so Witnesses. I found the reason for um, the reason for Daniel to be forced into entering the tournament just kind of a week. They're kind of trying to make you feel frustrated and angry at the at Mike for doing this, 
for being so annoying um, and constantly being there to cause ruckus. Pretty much like every five minutes that like we've seen before up until he finally decides to go for it. Um, but I just find it weak. Yeah, it is a it is actually a major disappointment that from the first movie where oh gosh, I don't even know, Daniel just enters it because um Yagi wants to train him in the art of karate and teach him to not be a pushover and kind of also put these other people in their place. But in the second one, Daniel has to fight Chosen uh, or else he's going to kill Yumiko. And so I kind of like how Daniel, like, that was life and death stakes. That was a much better stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one is he he's really just harassed into it, which ultimately does feel a bit more like Miyagi is like, okay, you know, we, we got to whoop these guys, so let's just go for it. There isn't much of a noble purpose behind it. There's no save the neighborhood. And Miyagi was like, I'm not going to train you just to defend a plastic trophy, but that's what he does in the end. Am I wrong? Yeah. So from what I, what I was gathering is um, the reason why Miyagi didn't want him to do it in the first place, um, which be in the beginning, he wanted him to sign it, the, the form to enter in the tournament, which I don't understand how he was able to get in after, even though uh, you need Miyagi's signature to get in the first place. But regardless um, before he didn't want to do it because uh he was, Daniel was just entering in the tournament to defend his title. And the first movie was more or less about earning respect from those who are wronging you, right? Um, this one is not necessarily about that. And Miyagi points this out. He's like, it's not about respect. You're just doing it just to flaunt that you are good at karate. That's the, that's against what karate is all about. It's against my teachings is why he doesn't decide, is why he doesn't, not only doesn't train him, but why he doesn't sign the form. Um, so this time around, I don't know why uh, Miyagi decides that he wants that he Miyagi decides that he uh, de- ultimately allows him to finally train him, and then also allows him essentially to get into uh, the tournament. I can kind of see it as them defending their honor, right? Uh, they've been trashed and to a point, and it's finally when Miyagi finally fights Crease and Silver and. Um, in Mike, when he realizes why our main character Daniel was wanting to get into the tournament, especially after the fact, um, but that's also kind of kind of weak. I, I see it as them defending an defending one's honor, um, but it's not nearly as impactful as it was before. Yeah, I hate that. I hate when Miyagi says, "Now I will train you." Yeah. So he's been holding off this whole time, just like in the other movies. Just when it gets really bad and Miyagi gets to see firsthand all of Daniel's harassment. And then he's like, okay, I'll train you guys because we got to like put it into these guys, I guess. And that's just something I, I also hate is the manufactured drama we consistently see in these movies where you hold off until the end, until our hero has no choice but to give in, to fight the bad guys, to put them in their place. Even Daniel calls it out. He, he has a line that says, I never learn. I should have just signed the thing in the first place. Yeah. Because this happens all the time. So I really hate this manufactured drama. And um, Miyagi, I don't know why he's just now training him here at the end. I thought I did actually like the fight um, itself when he was fighting um, Silver and Crease and Barnes, how they go down pretty quickly. It felt a little tired, though. Miyagi always saves the day. 
Yeah. Um, Daniel can't ever do anything for himself until the especially very last this minute. One. I feel like especially this one is yeah. probably the worst. Well, does he have short-term amnesia because he defeats Johnny in the first one, can't hold his own against Chosen until he learns the drum technique, and then he can't hold his own against Barnes. <laughs> and he's like, I need you to train me. And I'm like, what has Miyagi been doing the past two movies except training you when you've defeated the real deal from from Japan? I don't know. And he can't hold his own. He can't doesn't know anything. He forgets all of his training. So I don't know. Just yeah, I th- quite frustrating. I feel like this one is too much of a of a reflection of the first movie because uh, um you have they have to enter the, the tournament. Regardless of what happens in the story, they must enter that tournament. Um Miyagi must train Daniel. Uh, it just feels like it's so much of a reflection of the first movie that it kind of gets lost. Instead of telling its own story, it's trying to reflect what's happened before in the first one. It's fine that there is reflection there. I think it's, you know, that's important, especially for a story like this, seeing how far the heroes have gone from the first movie to now where they're a lot more mature and their relationship is changing in a lot of ways. So the reflection is fine, but I feel like it gets so wrapped up in in trying to keep that one-to-one it just gets to a point where it feels like it, it has a story that it wants to tell but because it's restricted by what has come in the first movie what they're trying to do it's holding the story back which i think is maybe why the first half or the first hour or so is just so it's just so compobulated and it's just so compact um it has so much information that is ultimately needless but then the second half it feels more focused because we're finally training for this thing it I feel like it just got it's written itself more into a corner of it's trying to ref- keep that reflection, but not telling its own story. There are a lot of missed opportunities in this film. And I would say one of the other ones, I know we've already talked about crease, but did you find it ridiculously goofy when he jumped out screaming, tongue hanging out at Daniel? Yes, I, I did openly laugh at that part. I did too. And Honestly, I was hoping by this point in the movie, he wasn't coming back. So I assumed what would happen is um, Silver would go all the way up with Daniel to the tournament. And then it was it was at the tournament where Daniel would be utterly crushed finding out his new teacher. He had lost Miyagi. Maybe Miyagi isn't even coming to the tournament and he'll show up later for moral support. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, Kreese shows up next to silver and then Barnes goes over to them as well. And you realize Daniel is utterly alone. He's lost everyone and he's been betrayed. I really wanted crease to just show up right there with silver at the tournament. I think that would have been so much better than jumping out tongue wagging kiss rock star style. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see. Um, yeah. How that would play out. If, Miyagi and Daniel's relationship wasn't repaired before the tournament. That would be interesting to see um, that he, at the end of the story, when he finally does win the tournament, he's re- he goes back to what Miyagi had taught him before, and that's what ends up giving him the win for the tournament and getting his honor back. Um, they don't do that here, of course. They, they kind of repair the relationship before the tournament starts, um, and, they, and he retrains him. So that would be interesting to see if they went down that route. Um, if they went down the route of that relationship between Miyagi and Daniel was just kind of in disrepair um, until the ending of the tournament, until after the tournament was already finished and Daniel had won and realized that the teachings of Miyagi were the things that, or, or the things that gave him 
um, the win in the first place. No, I did like the final fight for the fact that they kind of did this really arrogant thing where Barnes gets a point and then he'll purposely do something against the rules to lose that point. So then mm-hmm. he can just win with the last blow, win by one point, just to show that he's that good. He can be winning and losing points all around. I do really like right. that kind of, you know, pride goes before the fall. And all Daniel needed was that one hit. And if Barnes would have kept those points, then he would have, of course, swamped Daniel. But it was a pretty right. sweet victory at, for Daniel to just get that one point, And then the match is over, kind of that sudden death. Yeah. And there's also, of course, a little bit of irony uh, here because earlier... I think it's during his first, it's either his, I think it's either during the first session with Silver or maybe one after that, where he's doing that Kai um, that he had learned from Miyagi. Mm-hmm. And Silver says, you don't need to learn that. That's 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 dumb. I'm going to teach you how to fight with power. Um, and then, of course, that ends up being the thing that saves him and ends up giving him the win for the tournament here in the very end. Yeah. A little bit of irony there that I that I noted as well. I do think they could have hyped up this ending a bit more by getting the audience more so on Daniel's side and kind of turning against um, Barnes because Barnes is fighting dirty. He kicks Daniel in the groin in one yeah. section and... Um, he does a lot of disreputable things and so does the whole Cobra Kai. I do like how they start throwing the t-shirts back at him and, um, crease like jumps up into the stands and he's like, there's just some one girl that stands right in front of him. That's genuinely scared. Go back and watch the scene. And she like covers her, she shields her face, like, because she thinks she's going to get hit or something. That's funny. It is funny, but I was hoping the crowd would be, I mean, the, Barnes is awful. He's screaming at him. He's kicking him when he's down, and the and the yeah. crowd is like still just going for him. <laughs> and even even the ref, even the ref, like, he yeah. gives him warnings. But I feel like the things that he does, especially before he before Daniel like is up for the last time, yeah. and he's just like yelling at him. I feel like that's worth some kind of penalty. Yeah, it was frustrating as well. I am a little disappointed throughout this movie that Barnes is just used kind of this it's like this low level enforcer where he just harasses daniel um we don't ever get to see him training even though when he comes first of all we really don't know him very well he's in a magazine and he's called the bad boy of karate okay um no real backstory i don't really know his age um and i do wish that we probably i would have liked to have seen a little bit more of his training what were maybe some moves that he was learning that he was going to use against it um, and then we have the tiniest of montages, um, watching him train and then Daniel train right before the tournament. It just wasn't enough. I was pretty surprised about that. Yeah. I think it's like a minute long. And at that time there's like 20 minutes left in the movie. It was disappointing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, I can see the, ref- I can see kind of the parallel between, um, pulling Daniel away from Yagi somewhat in the same vein as how connected, it's in terms of training, how connected Silver and Mike are, which is not at all, really. He only hires him because he can fight well. He never really trains him. So I can kind of see something there. I, it's not, you know, exactly built upon much, but there is some kind of reflection there. And so, yeah. But yeah, I do agree with you that this movie is, uh, the, the character of, of Mike is annoying. Um Kind of in the same vein as Chosen, um, although I find Mike a bit more annoying because uh, he 
literally shows up and then destroys property and never gets reprimanded for it. Nothing comes of it. The only consequence is at the end of the story, he loses the tournament, which again, he had nothing to lose anyways. Um, he, so it, it just kind of makes his character flat with some of these scenes. He's not, he does have something to lose, but it's of no consequence. He doesn't get yeah. 50% ownership in the 20 Cobra Kai dojos. That's right. I forgot about that. Uh, they briefly mentioned that in, in his introductory scene. I just wish that that Miyagi would have bought this bonsai shop come to find out they're going to destroy it and build a Cobra Kai dojo there. And that's mm -hmm. going to be the victory as silver gets the bonsai area. Miyagi's got nothing. And Barnes is going to have that ownership in it. There, the stakes really just could have been higher in very basic ways. I'm not saying that's necessarily yeah. good, but it, it, I think it would have been much better than what we got here, which is pretty much nothing. Yeah. So I do kind of want to talk about Jessica. I briefly mentioned my issues with her earlier. Um, I feel she's honestly the weakest love interest girl character of the trilogy so far. You might disagree with me because <laughs> I found Komiko to be the more interesting one. And then, oh, what's her name from the first movie? Um... Elizabeth Shoe's character? <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Shoe's character. <laughs> I found hers to be not nearly as interesting as Komiko. Oh I find Jessica to be honestly the least interesting and the and partially because she has little to do with this plot, um, even less so than the, the girls before this. Uh, I found her character ultimately to be kind of more of a waste of time compared to the other two, at least. Um, Allie is still going to hands down be my favorite. I thought the chemistry between those two and the teenage depiction was great for a teenage movie. <sighs> Yumiko is utterly forgettable to me. And um, what's her name in this? I guess she's forgettable too. <laughs> Jessica. Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica Andrews, don't forget Jessica that. Andrews, that's right. She is a complete th completely throwaway also. Yeah. Um, she does really nothing for Daniel as a character. She, ru she runs with him. Um, so he's out of running buddy. Um, they go climbing together. Yeah, and they nearly die together too because she is an authority on climbing. Apparently not. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's like, I guess the only thing that her character does is she has the equipment and the exp expertise on rock climbing. I guess, you know, I, I'm glad right. she's not too much of a love interest. Uh, we never see them kiss. Um, I like that aspect of it. She makes the pottery for them. So I guess that's nice. Um, there's kind of a forgettable lesson there at the end where he apologized to her and She's kind of been the only thing semi-grounding him because he's kind of disregarding Miyagi and really buying into Silver's ideology. So she's kind of the go-between, but you're right. She's forgettable. A lot of it just feels like a waste of time. But if Daniel was by yeah. himself, I don't think it would be as interesting. So he needs some kind of opposite sex to play off of, I guess. But not great. Yeah. Not great. I'm not saying that. She's pretty <laughs> bleh. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm... I do kind of wonder what it would be like if they hadn't had a uh, a girl as a companion in this movie for Daniel. Well, um, because we've had it for the last two movies. So, and she does, she is definitely a reflection of Allie, of Allie from the first yeah. one. Um, well, she. Now, there she isn't is. exactly. What? No, you're right. She is. Yeah. There isn't exactly a. Um, 
they try not to play on the fact that oh it's actually uh, or more of a boyfriend girlfriend relationship they say oh we're no we're just we're just friends um which is also interesting that when they go on their first date which is handed to daniel so easily by the way um when they go on their first date the first thing she says to him is oh uh, i hope this doesn't change your mind but i have a boyfriend well i don't really we're kind of broken up but we're definitely talking now hope this doesn't change your mind about us why would you say that right when he gets to her door um <laughs> yeah that's that was honestly that that was a point in the movie where the movie just completely lost oh. me um that there was that line right there um <laughs> it was part it was a lot of things leading up to that point too because as i mentioned earlier the editing here and this pacing in this first hour is honestly i felt it to be just whiplash inducing and this was just the icing on the cake once it, once she said that. And for the rest of the movie, I was just trying to find a way to get into it, but wasn't really all that interested. Um, so from here on out, from here on out, I was just kind of, eh, whatever. So, you know, this movie did keep my interest the whole time, which is something I can't say for the other two. I'm not saying it kept my interest for the right reasons. They were hoping it would, but <laughs> it was pretty com unintentionally comedic. And I liked the relationship with silver and you're right. The first half of the movie is kind of a pointless mess but it wasn't so offensive that i um wasn't on board with it per se even though uh it was pretty ridiculous when daniel and jessica first meet and their uh, their first encounter they walk out of there with a date that night um i've never yeah. had that happen before <laughs> okay uh sure <laughs> yeah sure um that was pretty outrageous i thought but you know what you're right, Alan. It's whiplash. We got to move. The characters are already in a relationship. We got to go. We don't have time to yeah. think about it. And they, I just feel like her character ultimately is just incomplete because when Daniel walks out of her room that night, she's gone. Um, she's gone. She's and I feel like the the arc with her and Daniel is not done yet. It just feels like there's more that they need to do before she actually does leave, which is interesting. Why would they give her a time limit? Um, to be in the movie and then to also to not be in that place anymore. Interesting choice. I suppose they're trying to hammer in this, that it's just a friendship. They're only friends. Well, I will give you this, Alan. I think Yumiko is the closest we're going to get in this trilogy to having the female lead make a significant impact on Daniel and the world that the movie builds. Right. And that's kind of why I ended up liking Komiko's character the most out of the three that, especially now, now we've seen this one. That's why I liked her most out of the three girls we had here because I felt like she had the most impact to our main character. Oh, her name's Komiko? I've been saying Yumiko this whole time. Yeah, it's Komiko. Ah, dang it. Oh, well. I, I couldn't remember. I'm sorry. But um, the way this entire trilogy does kind of treat women is a bit of a disappointment because instead of them kind of being kind of the there's that phrase like e behind every man is a strong woman something like that yeah, yeah there's like that. really not that here it's entirely flimsy um it is very disappointing because the mom disappears within the first after the first half of the first she movie like, like one scene she doesn't get she one, scene. one scene it's really really strange why randy yeah. heller is gone it's almost suspicious actually um and yeah, I mean, the women are just very much kind of eye candy and throwaway obligatory romances to kind of bring in that audience, I guess. 
So it is interesting to note that with the next film, the lead is going to be female. Yeah, which will be interesting to see because these this trilogy has been definitely hearkening on the father-son relationship, right? So it'd be interesting to see, and maybe they might not go down this route, um, but it'd be interesting to see if they go down the route of the father-daughter relationship in the next Karate Kid. I hope so. <laughs> well, yeah. the last thing I'll say is I personally find it beautiful. Miyagi and Daniel hugging at the end. Miyagi says, no, we bow. But it did feel satisfying after watching these three movies to see them yeah. kind of have this father and son embrace, this very kind of loving embrace. And it is a bittersweet moment knowing this is the last time we'll see these two on screen together. And I liked that. For whatever weird reason, the last two movies always Miyagi is the last shot. I don't know why, but now it's a freeze frame of both of these two at the victory. So in a yep. very fun, lighthearted way, I liked it. Yeah. And I feel like this one isn't nearly as an abrupt ending as yeah. the last two were. Kind of, but not as much. I feel like this one has at least a little bit more to its uh, to his resolution than the last two do because the first one was a very <laughs> abrupt. Kind of the same thing with the second one. This one is a little bit more wrap up before just stopping the movie and that's like that's the end. Yeah. So. It's weird how this film uses the the plot structure, the rising action and climax and falling action all happen within pretty much the same scene. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's not good. But you're right. This one does feel better. This one does feel final. Um, and it does say the end. Now I went back and checked part two also says the end, which I was kind of hoping it didn't because I was kind of hoping these three movies would just kind of, I mean, these movies are really meant to be like one movie, one, one yeah. long yeah. storyline. And it's weird how, I guess it's supposed to be, um, what's the right word? Ironic that these things keep happening to these characters within the time span of 12 months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if that, if that. Uh, well, Alan, I got to say I'm super curious. What is your rating and recommendation for The Karate Kid Part 3? So, I mean, I I guess I don't I can't remember if we actually mentioned it in part 2, but there is most definitely a formula to The Karate Kid movies. And this is nothing new for movies in general. A series usually has some kind of formula that just works, nothing new here. The problem is, at least with like other movies that have this formula, like maybe even Back to the Future or Indiana Jones, they do kind of do something to mask that a little bit. There's something new, there's something that in there that's new enough to justify the formula that's been laid out. I don't see that here. I see a most definite formula pieced together by a plot that is trying so hard to reflect its movie that came first, but trying to be its own thing. And in some ways it succeeds, like especially with the character of Silver. I think he does a pretty good job, although I don't necessarily find him to be the best villain. I do like how much impact he has with our main character. Um, the issue with the with the uh, main love interests, if I guess if you want to call it that in this movie, is weird. Um, so, and then, of course, they had to wrap it all up with the tournament at the end, just like the first one. I feel like the the formula here is just showing itself too much. And especially with that first part, the first half of this movie, like I mentioned, just being, for me, whiplash-inducing, 
to a point where like a movie just completely lost me with the line of, oh, I hope this isn't, you know, ruin your night or anything, but I have a boyfriend. Well, did we broke up, but we're getting back together again from Jessica on the first date. Um, can't say I'm a very big fan of this one. There are elements that I like. I like the fact that the relationship between Miyagi and Daniel is severely challenged to a point where they almost completely split apart, it seems like, but then come back together. I like the fact that the villain has a much bigger role in the story. But I can't say that the these good elements necessarily can push it over the edge to be recommend. Not really in the slightest. This one, I feel, is the weakest of the three movies, even though it has some elements that I feel are better than those other two movies, like the villain and his uh, impact on the plot and some of the ways that the story plays out. So at the end of the day, I'm going to have to give it a four out of 10, but it's not going to be a recommend. It's going to be a pretty solid rec not recommend for me. I came into The Karate Kid Part 3 with the lowest of expectations. After negatively scoring the first two installments, and this being considered the worst entry in the franchise, depending on who you ask, I figured this film would be pretty bad. And I'm pleasantly surprised to say it's my favorite in the trilogy. <laughs> oh, really? Now, don't get me wrong. This movie isn't that good. It's even towards the bottom for me of 80s films. But what set this apart for me was, first of all, I was engaged the whole time. And secondly, I had fun. Now, maybe I had more fun with this movie than the director intended. But nevertheless, I laughed out loud and I genuinely enjoyed these character interactions and fights, despite how cartoony they are. For the first time in the series, Daniel isn't a static character, always doing the right thing. He changes into his worst enemy, blows off Miyagi, and forgets his principles. For that reason alone, I'm more invested in his character than I ever have been. Bringing back the Cobra Kai through Silver turned out to be a solid choice. The way their mindset hooks Daniel may be cartoonish, as I've already said, but it's far better than the incessantly annoying one-track-minded method of Chosen and Sato. That being said, Mike Barnes and his crew are cookie-cutter villains from the previous films, and their destructive methods are replays of what we've already seen. But there's enough going on with a platonic relationship Daniel forms, which is a nice change, his break from Miyagi, and his turn to the dark side to actually become a Cobra Kai is what I've been hankering for this entire trilogy. And that break between Miyagi and Daniel is important, because it gives their characters the opportunity to learn apart and then together. I love Miyagi's analogy of the strength of the bonsai tree. In fact, Pat Morita gives his best performance of the trilogy. His tears pulled me in, and their hug at the end got me emotional. Once again, don't get me wrong, this is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun, lighthearted, serious when it needs to be, and actually smart-ish. The Karate Kid Part 3 receives 6 stars out of 10 with a mild recommend. Oh, that's interesting. We were kind of on the same track with one and two, some differences here and there with some elements, but when it came to three, we we're probably the farthest off than the other two were, at least. It, at least between you and I. It sounds opinions. like it. It sounds like ultimately we had some very similar feelings, pretty much very same feelings throughout the review, but ultimately when it comes down to it, sounds like I'm a little bit more forgiving and had a little bit more fun with it than you did. And of course, I I acknowledge your issues with it and you're right. But at the same time, I got to say this movie held my attention more than any of the trilogy. And this is pretty much a remake of the first one. 
but it's a better remake. I I have to say. Now I understand that's blasphemy. I understand. <laughs> yeah, but to say it, to some people, that's that's uh that's not. I understand. Good. I'll probably be drawn and quartered for my heresy, but nevertheless, this I'm going to have to say it. This is my favorite of the trilogy. Um, would I be accurate? Well, let's just go ahead and rank the trilogy. So, what's your ranking? Yeah, so I guess my ranking would be so far in the trilogy, we still have two more left, but so far it's going to be two, one, three. Now, two and one are pretty close to each other, but I guess it's very evident by my scores being uh, the first two being five and the third one being a four. I am not a very big fan of this series. So, yeah, two, one, three. Mine is going to be reverse um, order. It'll be three, two, one. That's that's it. Um, nevertheless, and it is interesting because we both gave part one a five. We we're both on the same page with that. We both gave part two a five, but you actually recommended part two. And then this one. That's right. I did. I forgot. Yeah, I forgot. I gave it just a brief recommend. I could just, it was like, uh, maybe enough the hair. You did actually it. recommend one out of the three in the trilogy. And clearly our scores mm. are the most apart now. I would say our thoughts and feelings on the movie aren't this vast chasm or anything. I didn't I didn't love no, this no. movie, don't get me wrong. But I mean, what did I expect coming in with this trilogy after part 1 and part 2? That's that's also a fair uh view to take. Uh what more <laughs> do you expect from the karate kid after seeing parts 1 and 2? But in the end, so far for the trilogy, we both have the same exact average score of a five out of 10, which means it's super mediocre. I, I would even say worse than mediocre. It's subpar. And yeah, for yeah. me personally, I cannot recommend the trilogy. Yeah, neither can I, even though part two was some kind of shining light, if you want to call that on the trilogy uh, for me. Yeah, I ultimately... If I were pressed to it for it, I would just say nah, you can don't you don't necessarily have to watch it. It's not <laughs> really worth the time, I don't think. So I still have to ask Alan, even though I'm pretty clear on the answer. Pick up or pass for part three? Eh, it's gonna be pass. It's gonna be pass. And still, I'm going to pick up. I'm not just going to pick up this solo. I'm going to pick up the five film box set. There you go. And hopefully I'm going to find it at Dollar Tree for a dollar. I'm holding out hope. <laughs> someday, someday. Someday. Well, Pamarita is back. Five years later, I have no idea if Ralph Macchio will make any sort of appearance in the next Karate Kid, which honestly, this whole time, I thought, until we did their series, I thought that was the third, third one. I had no idea it was the fourth one. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, it's going to take five years. Um, which is no surprise because of the box office we talked about. So the next Karate Kid will be directed by Christopher Kane. Alvinson is gone and it will be the shortest one, thankfully, in the franchise at 107 minutes. And it was released in a really weird time, Friday, September 9th, 1994. Sep okay, Ooh. so January is dumping grounds. August and September is basically no man's land. It's a uh, summer blockbuster season is over and you're not quite ready for the December, November um, Oscar season. So usually that's kind of the wasteland of cinema. Nothing really comes out. Usually there'll be some kind of 
gym that'll appear before right. October, right. but I don't know. September 9th, 94. It's interesting. I'll, I'm curious to see what uh, movies were released around this time um, and see what, what won Best Picture. I don't remember what won Best Picture in 94. I'm curious. I'm curious to see where they're going to go with this. Like I mentioned, they might, maybe if they go down the route of the father-daughter relationship, I'm curious to see where they go with it. Um, not super excited given what we've had so far, um, but I'm curious. You know, as of this recording, um, the next Karate Kid is available free to stream on IMDb TV. Just adds up. Now, of course, that'll change in the future. But hopefully mm-hmm. by the time you're hearing this, listeners, it still is available for you to watch. Now, one last thing before we sign off. In 2015, um, there was an interview with the writers and creators of the Karate Kid series. And director John Alvidson said this about the film. Sounds like it'll make Alan happy. Alvidson said, quote, Karate Kid Part 3 was a poor imitation of the first one. It was a horrible movie. Interesting. Coming from the director. The director disavowed this movie and this movie stars his son in a speaking role. Huh. So he cast his son in the first movie, in the worst movie, apparently. That was nice. Nice. Well, Alvidson clearly thinks he's going on to greener pastures. His first film, Rocky, which came out in the mid-70s, won Best Picture of the Year. He uh, wasn't on board with anything of that series for two, three, and four, but he will come back to direct Rocky V. I watched Rocky V for the first time like two years ago. It does feel a lot like a Karate Kid movie. It is. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, well, we might be reviewing those movies next year. Mm-hmm. No official announcement just yet, but maybe a sneak peek into what we're talking about behind the scenes. But, Alan, after watching Karate Kid Part 3, clearly you did not recommend this movie to listeners. Is there something you can think of that's better instead that you'd rather have them watch? Um, I guess I haven't seen this movie in a number of years, so... I don't know what my thoughts are on it, um, <laughs> but Night at the Museum. I, I got a weird oh, Night at the Museum vibe off of this, watching it. Um, kind of with the last two, but I figured I'd bring it up here anyways. So yeah, Night at the Museum. It's been, I don't know, probably a decade maybe since I've seen it. I don't know when it came out, but it's been a long time since I've watched it. So that's what I would recommend. That's what I would, would recommend. If you want to see very similar films like the karate kid but with a much bigger man and a much older man than pat marita then go ahead and watch the rocky series i mean it's they're almost like twins this is very much the kid version the teenage version of rocky uh it's not even funny how similar those movies are and like i said maybe we'll talk about them yep still have yet to see any of them so if we do my first time you'll have the karate kid to base it off of i guess that's that's true that's true (sighs) well listeners the question after the show is is this your favorite in the trilogy or your least favorite clearly this is alan's least favorite this is actually my favorite so whose side are you on listeners or maybe fall somewhere in between well alan thanks for joining me sure thing Well, listeners, we will see you next week with the next Karate Kid.
Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. One track minded chosen. No, excuse me. But it's far. That's a run on sentence. Oh, Corbin, 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 the English major. (laughs) All right, listeners, we will see you next week with the karate. I almost said the karate kid part four. (laughs) No, please, no. (laughs) Oh, man. The only other part four that I can think of that's an actual part four maybe is um, The Omen. The Omen part four, The Awakening. Well, there's also, uh, well, I guess that's not true. I was going to say Hunger Games had four installments, but it wasn't called part four. It was called Hunger Games, whatever the last one's called, part two. I don't know. I don't think you would name anything part four aside. It was also Rocky four. Yeah, but it's not part four. four. I don't know. All right. I've got to correct that. You're the best. Oh,